Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different. Different. This is NOCO FM. I used to believe that we must choose between science and reason on one hand and spirituality on the other in how we can lead our lives. Now I consider this a false choice. We can recover the sense of sacredness, not just in science, but in perhaps every area of life. Larry Dossey, MD, from Reinventing Medicine. A distinguished Texan physician, deeply rooted in the scientific world, Larry Dossey has become an internationally influential advocate of the role of the mind in health and the role of spirituality in healthcare. The author of nine books and numerous articles, Dr. Dossey is the former executive editor of the peer-reviewed journal Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine, the most widely subscribed to journal in its field. In 2013, Larry received the prestigious Visionary Award that honors a pioneer whose visionary ideas have shaped integrative healthcare and the medical profession. On this episode of The Spark, I have the incredible opportunity to speak with Dr. Larry Dossey about his new book, The One Mind, how our individual mind is part of a greater consciousness and why it matters. Exciting new look into how we are all interconnected and how we can truly bring healing to ourselves and to our planet. This is The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Welcome, wonderful physician and New York Times best-selling author, Larry Dossey, to the program. Larry, welcome to The Spark. Thank you so much for being here with me. Well, it's a real pleasure, and uh, I've been looking forward to this for some time. Thank you. You know, Larry, I, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about your book, The One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. But first, I want to talk about the mind behind the one mind, because I'm Mm -hmm. interested in not only where you came up with the idea for this book, but where you've come from, what in your life, in your own personal journey brought you to this point. Well, I began many years ago, uh, actually during my first year in medical practice. Uh, I should say that the idea of the one mind uh, is just sort of a catch-all phrase for not only the stuff of their conscious mind, such as thoughts, uh, cognitions, and emotions, and so on. Uh, Also, my hypothesis is that there's an overarching something that we call consciousness that takes in all of that stuff. It takes in the the contents of our minds, our thoughts, and and so on. And it's this overall consciousness that uh, is a immense concern to me, because in my judgment, we cannot make sense of our own experiences, and particularly what happens uh, with healing uh, if we don't take the necessary steps to get to this idea of the one mind. So the one mind is sort of an umbrella for what we call our ordinary waking consciousness. This idea just burst upon my uh, sense of importance in my first year in medical practice, in which I had a series of what are called precognitive dreams, dreams that reveal what's going to happen in the future, 
And uh, I had a series of these dreams. I saw clinical events that would happen in the lives of uh, my friends and actual patients before they even happened. I knew that if what I'd been taught in medical school was correct, which is that the consciousness is made by the brain and uh, it's confined to the present moment. The only way we gain information is through sound, touch, hearing and sight and all of that sort of thing. Well, that didn't explain my experiences. So I went to the literature and began to look at what is being called consciousness research. And I was shocked to see the number of first-rate scientists and physicists and uh, even a physician here and there uh, who endorsed this idea that there is a single unitary consciousness which isn't confined to the brain and body, and it isn't confined to knowing just what's going on in the present. This picture has been swept under the carpet. It's been ignored. But here it was manifesting in my own life as a physician. I decided to continue my research, and this went on over many, many years. It resulted in several books, uh, one of which we're talking about today, but it also was validated by other physicians and scientists when I began to talk about this. I have a file drawer of letters from physicians who, through over the years, have said, thanks for making this public, because this fits my experiences and so I decided that there are two levels of evidence that are coming together to fortify this idea of the one mind. One is people's experiences. This is what doctors were telling me about. But also in addition to this are experiments. There are hundreds of studies now, little known to the public and to my colleagues, that validate this idea that consciousness is unitary and one and not confined to the present moment. So that's a nutshell in how, how I got to the present, <laughs> to the present, thinking uh, that uh, this idea is not really strange at all. Some of the people who have endorsed this idea, you can make a pretty impressive list of physicists, philosophers, and physicians who have indeed endorsed this idea. Throughout time. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because these ideas are only about 3,000 years old. If you go back uh, to the uh, literature of ancient India, you bump into something called the Akashic Records, which is sort of an off-site storage of what we experience in common uh, everyday life. And this is basically one of the earliest expressions of this idea of the one mind. And you can tra track this through Plato, who said there is only one mind. You can track it through modern philosophers uh, such as William James, the father of American psychology. Some of the outstanding physicists of the 20th century, such as Erwin Schrodinger, who won the Nobel Prize in 1933, endorsed this idea of the one mind, saying that the idea of multiple minds makes no sense. In truth, there is only one mind. So although many people may think this is a fringe idea, uh, that's not quite right. It's endorsed by some of the greatest intellects of the 20th century. I'm curious, Larry, why do you think that it's it's been kept a secret? What what makes it so that people are afraid? Because I also, you know, I have a private practice here in Fort Collins. And as a psychotherapist, I hear these stories all the time. 
Sure. So I and I and I am aware of the collective experience as I speak to more people. So this this concept is, you know, we, we hear about it all the time. What do you think makes people afraid of the one mind? Well, I think uh, we've been culturally hypnotized. I, I think we're in sort of a cultural trance that prevents the acknowledgement of minds beyond the individual. You know, we've made a fetish in this country uh, of the cult of the individual. Uh, individualism is praised. You've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You've got to take the initiative. Don't depend on anybody else to do anything for you. I mean, this is sort of the American ideal. Individuality is important. I would be the last person to deny the importance of a sense of personhood. Without it, mental health is a wreck. But that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is this unitary common sense of consciousness that can be shown in people's experiences and experiments. So it's not that colleagues of mine ignore this idea of the one mind. Basically, they just don't want to be bothered with it. You know, and when confronted with the evidence, a lot of them will come forward and say, yeah, this fits my experience and I'm glad you brought this up. You know, you mentioned the experiences of uh, therapists, psychotherapists with patients, there, you probably know this, but there's enormous literature of these experiences that are traded between therapists and clients that fit into this idea of non-local knowing. Uh, therapists can gain information that's not rational or conveyed to them by clients. Clients can tap into the consciousness of therapists. They do this not uncommonly. And this is just further evidence that there's a lot going on that we just decided to ignore because it doesn't fit the materialistic attitude that says the brain is the source of everything. And I agree with what you're saying. Absolutely. That has been my own personal experience. When I get myself out of the way, and, and I do now, I mean, I, I truly feel like my private practice is my spiritual practice. So I just feel like a conduit. I've, I've always said that, you know, the last 12 years I've been in private practice. It's not, you know, it's not when a client says, oh, thank you so much for helping me. I always have to take a second look at that because I never feel like it's me. I'm just when I just open up, you know, I'm the conduit for the healing to happen. And I haven't read that information in a book. When I'm saying something, I'm not thinking in my brain, oh, did I learn that in school? What therapeutic technique should I apply right now? Right. right. You open up to exactly what you're saying to that one mind, to that some people call collective consciousness or whatever word that you want to use. Am I hearing that right? Is that the same? You're hearing it uh, totally right. I, I think that if doctors, uh, I'm talking about my colleagues now, uh, if they had permission and knew that they were not going to be criticized publicly, for coming forward, you would be surprised about the stories they, they would tell. You know, I, I think that uh, the culture is changing in its openness toward these ideas. For example, the uh, statistics now say that only about 15 million Americans have had near-death experiences. Most of these near-death experiences involve what we call out-of-the-body experiences of departing from your physical body and witnessing things that are going on during resuscitations and all of this sort of thing. Skeptics and materialists have tried their dead level best to call these hallucinations 
just imaginings, wild imaginings that happen in a sick brain, but that just won't cut it. You pair these personal experiences with studies now that have shown that we can convey our intentions and our attitudes and our wishes to other biological systems at a distance, such as animals with tumors. We can modify the growth rates of bacteria at a distance in test tubes. You know, you can't uh, uh, explain away these phenomena by saying, you know, this is just the placebo response, because as far as we know, bacteria just don't think positively. (laughs) Something else is going on. And uh, it's not that there are just one or two of these studies or experiences. Now, there are hundreds of them. And uh, they've been done by some of the smartest researchers I've ever bumped into in my life. So we're at a, I, I think, at a break point in how we understand our own consciousness. If I could just say what I think is the most important aspect of this whole conversation, it is the implication that if our consciousness is not confined to our brain and body, this opens up all sorts of possibilities about the survival of bodily death, the perpetuation of consciousness in space and time. And as a physician, I I, I just think this is incredibly important. I happen to believe that the fear of bodily death and total annihilation has caused more pain and suffering in the history of the human race than all of the physical diseases combined. So I think the implications of these studies toward pointing toward one mind are just far more than cute little laboratory aberrations. This has enormous implications for the tranquility and the happiness that people experience in their lives. I can't imagine any greater contribution from any area of medicine, bar none. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, Larry, because you had some incredible examples in your book. And if you could share some of those with us, I had my own experience with this when my daughter was four years old and told me directly when you know I had gotten news that my aunt was terminally ill and going to die and I was upset. My four-year-old daughter comforted me by literally very articulately saying, you know, mom, we never die. She said, you know, when I was up in the sky before I came here, I was a light in the sky. And then she said, you remember your other mother, Dorothy? And that was my grandmother who died when I was 13. And she said, well, she was in the sky with me and God took some of her light and put it in me. And then I got to come down and be your daughter. Well, so the interesting thing is she never knew my grandmother. She only knew my my grandfather's current wife, Grandma Seal. And so for me, you know, and so that's been 26 years ago. And that was that point for me, Larry, when I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have to worry about death anymore. You know, I really was able to say exactly what you're saying. Like, there's no way she could have known any of that. You right. know, we, we didn't talk about God. We didn't go to church. Th- those things weren't in her vocabulary. It was very interesting how she phrased it. Your other mother, Dorothy. So, you know, th- that was it. You know, This is a classic example. Uh, I have many stories from people who have written me about these revelations that come from kids, usually, oh, from the average of five years or younger, usually after the age of six or so, they get this sort of socialized out of them and they, they stop talking about this sort of thing. But young children don't have any 
difficulty with these ideas about a non-local unitary uh, consciousness that's free in space and time and immortal and eternal. This just doesn't seem strange to them at all. And so some of our best literature comes from uh, pediatricians who stumble into these uh, stories. And uh, the tragedy, of course, is that they they learn to keep it to themselves uh, by and large. But you're right. These stories are quite common in kids who uh, just haven't uh, had it hypnotized out of them, as most of them, most of them do. Well, one of the uh, great uh, stories is... Uh, a an academic who was teaching a course in uh, consciousness and the philosophy of consciousness at a medical school he wrote me and uh, he was uh, in bed one morning preparing for a, an early morning class and he was uh, obsessed as he said obsessed was his word he says he was obsessed with the psychology of Carl Jung the great great philosopher and psychologist and uh, he hadn't decided whether to go over to Jung's views or not. But at this point, his five-year-old son came, came in and sat down on his bed. And his son launched into a 20-minute discussion of the most sophisticated philosophy that this academic had ever, ever heard. He's, he said that chills came over him. He didn't know what to say. He said his son used sophisticated academic language that was publishable. He spoke in a clear voice without any hesitation whatsoever. And the academic was absolutely blown away. Then the school bus came, the horn honked, and his son got up and, and went, went to school. The son later had no recollection of any of this. And it helped change the life of this uh, of this academic. Uh, this is a sort of dynamite we're, we're sitting on. It's wisdom that humans possess when they come into this life. And uh, the struggle of, for most of us for the rest of our li life after forgetting this wisdom is how the heck we can regain it. <laughs> That's uh, what a good deal of this book, The One Mind, deals with. How can we regain what we've forgotten? How can we break the cultural hypnosis and get back on track to the true nature and meaning of our own consciousness? You know, a lot of people don't have any trouble with this idea. It reverberates in their own experiences. Many people say that when I meditate, that's where I go. Absolutely. You know, it becomes real to me. When people have out-of-body experiences, like when surgery goes wrong, you know, when they they lose consciousness and they escape their body and view things at a distance, usually above uh, their bodies, they they have this feeling of absolute limitlessness. They feel at one with everything. When they come back, this is what they described. It was one of the most wonderful things I've ever experienced, and it's this sense of unity. Uh, and oneness with everything that is the most meaningful experience in their life. So I hope that gives you some of the landscape of, uh, of what the one mind looks like. Yes. You know, and what do you think, Larry, is the importance of sharing this message in our world right now? Well, I think our future may depend on it. 
you know, if you look at the conflicts and in the earth around the around the earth now, what you see are epidemics and spasms of hyper individuality. We have people up against other nations, other creeds, other religions, our political parties that are at each other's throats. We have these divisions where people just can't come together and concentrate on specific problems. You, you would have to be, I think, mentally deranged not to see that we are in huge trouble with respect to population, pollution of air and water. We're destroying air climate. And uh, I believe that only by a sense of commonality, a sense of your problems are my problems and vice versa, are we going to be able to summon the wisdom and the courage to meet these huge problems and challenges that we face? I think it's no exaggeration to say that our future as a species depends upon our ability and capacity to come together in unity and a common purpose to solve these problems before we reach some sort of tipping point. I mean, this is not just my opinion. I mean, people are saying this uh, in every government. Uh, unfortunately, uh, our government has not been noted for its courage and its wisdom lately with respect to any of these problems. Uh, we're in a state of denial, pretty much. But I think that this is where the solution lies. It's in our ability to honor our commonality, not just with one another as human beings, but with all of sentient life. We need to experience this this oneness and unity. So I, I think that although people can take this idea of the one mind and try to limit it to just uh, a philosophical interpretation, it is highly practical. I, I think uh, our future uh, actually depends upon this. You know, Alice Walker, the, the great novelist, uh, I think put it pretty succinctly. She said, anything we love can be saved. And for me, that pretty much stands a, as a challenge about where we must go if we intend to survive as a species in any meaningful way on this globe. Hey friends, this is Charles with NOCO FM, the podcast network and streaming radio station dedicated to creating diverse shows just like this one and the numerous others that we help produce. We hope you'll consider becoming a supporter on Patreon, which helps us pay our hosts, produce more shows, and allows us to give back to nonprofits in Northern Colorado. Not only do you become part of our community, but giving also gets you access to an incredible selection of exclusive content from all of our creators, starting at just $2 a month. To get started now, just visit noco.fm slash patron and sign up. Once again, that's noco.fm slash patron. Hope you have a fantastic start to 2019. We've got some big things coming your way. Now, back to the show. about the revision of the golden rule. How can we 
revise uh, the golden rule to make it make sense? The golden rule is expressed in different ways in all of the world's great religious traditions. It just is just it's not uh, confined to the Christian perspective. And we usually express the golden rule as do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is, you know, a very selfish, individualistic, person-oriented sort of attitude. I think based on what we know now on the unitary concepts of consciousness that we can upgrade the golden rule to something sort of like this. Be kind to others because in some sense they are you. I mean, this shifts the existential premises. Uh, You're not doing this just to get ahead individually. When you get ahead, everybody else benefits also. And to me, this puts fire in the belly of this whole idea of being kind and loving toward other people. You're not doing this just for you, getting something in return. You're doing it because you are that other person at some deep fundamental level. Beautiful. I, I love that. And I, and I think that's true. I, I do that work with my couples when I say it. The golden rule, you know, in, in that sense, it's not do unto others as they would have done on done unto you. It's do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. But I yes. love it that you take it one step further. And it's like do unto others because we are all each other. We're all a part of this. It's like we're all cells on this universal human body. Well, I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the uh, great philosophers in the uh, 1900s, in in the uh, 19th century, uh, Schopenhauer, said that uh, this is the explanation for why people behave selflessly toward others, even to the extent of putting their lives in danger to save someone else. Uh, This was a uh, a real challenge to philosophers of his day because Darwin had come along and said, you know, it's just anti-human common sense to risk your life for somebody who isn't related to you. Our main goal as humans is to perpetuate our own genetics. So it just doesn't make any sense for somebody to risk their life to save somebody else they don't even know and have never heard of. But yet those things happen. So what did they happen? Schopenhauer said that at the decisive moment when the rescuer decides to put his life in danger to save somebody else, at that point, we're seeing something amazing unfold. The rescuer and the individual who's in need have become so entwined that at that moment, their minds have become one. So the rescuer is not trying to save someone else. In essence, he's trying to save himself because their consciousnesses at that point have become fused. This is one of the most dramatic explanations of the one mind idea I think I've ever heard. I've collected uh, stories of uh, people risking their lives to save other people. There's every combination. People risk their life to save animals. Animals risk their life to save people. Animals save animals. And obviously people save people. So there's this idea that consciousness enfolds not just human beings, but it enwraps all of sentient life. 
And these rescue stories, which span all species in every combination, I think attest to that fact. And you share in the beginning of your book that story about Wesley Autry. Wesley Autry was a 50-year-old naval veteran. He was a black man, and he did carpentry and construction work in New York City. And uh, I think it was uh, in 2007, although I might have the date wrong, he was uh, waiting on a subway platform in New York City to go to work. And he saw a young man, a white man, have an epileptic fit, and he lost control and he fell onto the tracks. So there was a subway coming. In spite of that, Autry jumped down onto the tracks and tried to drag this man out and put him back out of the way. He was too heavy. He couldn't do this. So he pulled him into the little depression between the two subway tracks and covered him with his body. And uh, the train could not stop in time. Several cars passed over them before the train managed to stop. Wesley Autry was almost beheaded by the passing train. He had grease upon his cap when the saga was over, and he became an overnight celebrity. He tried to just laugh it off, and he said it was just nothing. He said, I, I just felt like I, I had to do it. This violates every Darwinian impulse that you've ever read about in evolutionary biology. He isn't supposed to do that. He had never heard of this young man. The young man was an art student. Uh, Autry was of a different race, a construction worker, but he didn't hesitate. This is what Schopenhauer was trying to get at. At the decisive moment, it was as if Autry was rescuing not someone else, but himself. Actually, the New York media fell in love with him. He was showered with uh, gifts from people all over, but he didn't know this was going to happen. He had no ulterior motive, except he felt intimately connected with another human being of a different race, of a different generation, but he did it anyway. This is what the one mind looks like in action. You shared that you had personal experiences with this as well when you were a medic in Vietnam. Yes, I did write about that. I was a field battalion surgeon in, uh, in the field in 1968, 1969. And uh, as a battalion surgeon, I had many instances where I had to decide if I was going to put my own life in danger uh, to help these kids I was uh, I was supposed to uh, keep safe if I could. And uh, the most dramatic example was when, a, uh, was when a helicopter crashed, turned upside down, and it drenched everybody and everything in gasoline. And uh, so I was close to this when this happened. And uh, nobody else would get even close to this, this crash helicopter because they knew it was going to explode and they didn't want to get burned up. In spite of that, I, with one of my medics, rushed into this upside-down helicopter and cut the pilot loose from his seatbelt and so on. He was incapacitated. He couldn't move. And we drug him out of this wreckage. Fortunately, it didn't explode. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But I began to wonder why in the heck I did that afterwards, uh, didn't make any sense. I'd sworn to my parents before I went to Vietnam that I would never take any unnecessary chances. 
And I had not been there six weeks before I began to violate that. And I, I, I was confused about my own mental health, my own sanity in this crazy war zone. And I stayed confused until I got back to the States and I began to read widely about these sorts of instances. Why do people behave like that? And I've already mentioned this, but I, I came across the writings of Schopenhauer, the German philosopher, who began to talk about why people behave like this. And when he talked about the consciousness of the rescuer becoming one with the person in trouble, I knew in an instant that that was the explanation for my crazy behavior. And it came as a huge revelation and a huge comfort to me that uh, to have an explanation from one of the great European philosophers of the 19th century. So that, that was an important step for me in understanding the one mind and how you can give yourself over to that almost reflexly, almost automatically, as if that's an expression of who we actually are. So that there was no consciousness. You, you didn't think. It was just, no. it was just you were just moved to act. Exactly. I mean, you know, in situations like that, there's not time to weigh the options and, you know, make a calculated logical chain about what might happen if I do this or don't do this. In situations like that, it, it's like something is doing you. You're not doing it. I think that that's a crucial thing here. We don't weigh logically these sorts of instances. We simply act. And these examples are a dime a dozen. I mean, most of them don't get reported, but uh, they happen quite commonly. I don't think we understand as clearly as we should what is going on in these sorts of instances. I mean, we give people medals for that sort of thing. We talk about courage and valor and all of this sort of thing. But those are just dress up words that we apply later and to try to understand these and reward people in, in certain ways. But during the the actual moment, there isn't any reasoning. And there isn't any reasoning is that that is an opportunity for this inner aspect of who we are, this unitary intelligence, to manifest its, itself in ways that involve saving another person's life. It's like our true essence, which is bigger than it's like there's no birth or there's no death of it, that that's what becomes activated in those moments. That's the way I see it. <laughs> I want to ask you about the part that you just spoke about a little bit ago, the, the animals and, and how do animals fit into the one mind? Because being a scuba diver myself, I've experienced part of what you spoke about in the book where, you know, I'll be swimming with a school of fish and they all move as one body. They never touch each other. They never touch me. And it literally, for me, I've always said scuba diving is, is truly, for me, heaven on earth, because it's that experience of total union with everything around you, and you watch everything moving in this beautiful, connected one. So if you can speak to that a little bit. Well, I, uh, I thought that if this one mind thing uh, involves human beings, which I am convinced it does, then... There should be analogs in uh, uh, so-called lower animals that express the same sort of thing. So I went to the literature of ethology and to try to find uh, analogous 
expressions in animal behavior that justify this idea of the one mind. They're all over the place. If you know, you you brought up one beautiful example, schools of fish. There are a lot of videos uh, that can be downloaded showing what's called a flash reaction, where a school of fish, a predator ex- approaches a school of fish, and all at once they do this. They just explode. They go in every direction, and the idea is that confuses the predator. The predator doesn't know which one to attack. Ethologists have tried to measure the reaction times between fish on the perimeter of these these uh, schools, and to try to explain this simultaneous behavior in terms of just vision or any other form of communication just just a, doesn't hack it. There's no way to explain this. Uh, if you look at uh, herds of uh, caribou, uh, herds of uh, gazelles in, in East Africa, they, they move in much the same way. If you look at flocks of birds, so-called murmurations, where they do these enormous aerial ballets in unison, uh, you, you cannot explain this simultaneous behavior without bringing in some sort of unitary consciousness. Now, there are a lot of ethologists who just will not go there. They don't want any kind of uh, simultaneous knowledge getting into their science. But there are many, many ethologists who have sat and watched herds of animals for hours. They have taken cameras and done simultaneous measurements uh, on both sides of the schools of fish. And they're very eager to say, we don't understand this, but they're behaving as if there's a single intelligence wrapping up the whole group. The person who has carried this farthest has been uh, Rupert Sheldrake, the British biologist who wrote a book that had one of the great titles, Dogs Who Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And he uh, was fascinated by the fact that dogs, when the owner is leaving work from downtown, the dog in the suburb, suburb will go to the door and just wait until the owner gets home. They've tried to fake the dogs out with the owner coming home at odd times, walking home, coming home in a taxi. Every trick that they've tried to use does not fool the dog. The dog simply, <laughs> the dog knows. So there's no way to explain this uh, conventionally with sound hearing and habits and training and all of that. So I, I think this idea of the one mind is something that isn't confined just to people. I, I think it permeates uh, uh, evolutionary biology probably from top to bottom. And when, when you mentioned Rupert Sheldrake's experiences with the dogs, too, also you had some wonderful examples of animals that, you know, are lost or that find their owner when they're clear across the country. Yeah, this is not supposed to be possible either. Uh, there's one famous story of uh, a, a collie, a collie mix. Well, Bobby, Bobby the collie, long story short, Bobby got lost in Ohio or Indiana, and the owners couldn't find Bobby and went on to uh, their new home, and I believe it was uh, around in, in Oregon, and uh, forgot about Bobby as sort of a lost cause. Well, several months later, Bobby shows up in the, the new home in, in, in Oregon. Bobby was not homing. This was a new home. Bobby had never been there, but somehow this dog with 
identifying a dog collar and identifying marks and scars. It couldn't have been a lookalike animal. This dog showed up having run up the stairs and jumped in bed with the previous owner. I mean, that's a dramatic story. Uh, Bobby came, became <laughs> quite famous, uh, was uh, faded by local newspapers, and uh, the story is is quite well known. So if listeners, viewers want to do Bobby the Collie, I mean, there's a lot of information about that. And I think this is uh, a stunning example that, once again, one mind and uh, individual consciousness can't explain one mind can, but individual consciousness cannot explain these these behaviors that permeate all species, humans on top and God knows what's on bottom. Well, let me ask you this. The, the other concept, uh, and there, there's so many different areas, but I know we only have about 10 minutes left. So the information on twins and telesomatic events was fascinating. You shared that you have a very personal connection to this as you're an identical twin and your wife, Barbara, is a fraternal twin. Right. And, and the stories in your book are so fascinating about some of the research on twins. Can you share some of those stories? One of the threads uh, of evidence that got me excited about this idea of the one mind, the unitary consciousness in the first place, my brother and I are very, we're very, very identical uh, growing up, when we were growing up, we were sort of like the little girl, your your daughter who told you at age four these things she, she had no business knowing. Well, things happened to us. We would have feelings that would be shared uh, occasionally, just f- physical physical stuff that would pop up on on both of us. And you know, as at that age, you don't know that you're not supposed to have these things, right? My brother and I developed a term for these phenomena. We just called it twin stuff. And I mean, it was no big deal. I mean, that's just what happened. And uh, later, when I began to investigate a literature in this area, I was surprised that people had actually investigated these long distance correlated feelings and even physical symptoms between identical twins. It doesn't happen with all twins. We know that. Uh, Research shows now about 20 to 30 percent of identicals experience these things. The long story short that I related in the book had to do with little five-year-old, four-year-old twin girls in northern Spain. One day, the father took one of them off to visit the grandparents who were dozens of miles away. The other little girl wanted to stay home and help her mother with household chores. In so doing, the little girl who stayed home touched a red-hot iron and erupted in a second-degree burn, a big, fat blister on her hand. As it turned out, at the grandparents' house, dozens of miles away, the other little girl at the same time erupted on a, uh, with a blister on the same hand, in the same part of the hand, and in the same pattern as her sister who had stayed at home. They didn't know that this had happened. Uh, when they reunited, the story got out and they became local celebrities. This story was investigated by a team of psychologists at the University of Madrid, and it got big play. I mean, it was thoroughly investigated. Photographs were made. They interviewed the doctor who uh, looked at the little girl at a distance who had been uh, had this spontaneous eruption of this second-degree burn. This, these are called telesomatic uh, events. 
between uh, these twins. There's uh, a, a book called Twin Telepathy. If people want to have their minds blown by these sorts of documented events. But as a twin, this really got my attention because I could verify that these sorts of things really happen in uh, life, uh, real life situations. My wife is a, a fraternal twin. She and her twin brother at a distance have experienced these sorts of things, which, which are absolutely spectacular. I don't know how you explain these away and these throwaway terms that people use like, oh, it's just a funny coincidence. These things happen on their own. Don't get too excited about them. I think we should get excited about them because I think they're an avenue into understanding how our consciousness operates. Well, and even with twins, you say in the book that were separated at birth. Identical things happening to them during their life, whether it was injuries or marrying the same named wives and naming their kids the same names. Well, it looks like that there is a link, <laughs> right, that I think operates through unitary consciousness that makes all of these things understandable. You know, geneticists have tried to explain these distant happenings and twins who are separated at birth, who have never seen each other outside the nursery, as just a funny expression of genetics. We don't really understand how genes do this, but we're into genes and biology, so don't bring in this fuzzy consciousness stuff. I don't know how you get these events out of genes. Genes code for proteins. I, I don't know. To me, it's just wildly speculated to say that these are genetic expressions. Uh, I think uh, we need to open our minds uh, and uh, go with consciousness. It's the only thing I think that has any experimental hope of uh, shedding light on these distant non-local happenings. Well, and what I love that, that you're speaking of is, is what's been happening in our world is this where, you know, it's, it's spirituality, it's psychology, and it's science all coming together. And when you were talking in the book about quantum entanglement, can you speak to that, too? Because that, that's also some of the science that, that helps explain this. Well, quantum entanglement uh, came out of uh, certain observations at the subatomic level. And uh, just to be very brief, if two subatomic particles are united initially, and then they're spread apart, even to opposite ends of the universe, uh, we know that when certain qualities of one change instantly, the other distant particle changes to the same degree. It's, it's as if they, although are separate, they still are united as one particle. This is the way humans behave. I'm not saying that humans do what they do in these non-local ways because their subatomic particles are doing that. I, I'm not saying that at all. But it is a very helpful metaphor. We know that these distant, non-local correlated happenings do occur in the subatomic physical world. And so this offers us a model that may help us understand how these things happen among human beings. Human beings are more than their subatomic particles, so I don't want to take this comparison too far. But at least it helps us feel more comfortable knowing that we behave in these distant integrated ways, and that there is a, a model that 
we can point to at the subatomic level where this sort of thing also happens to occur. So it's no so, longer woo-woo. It's science. <laughs> yeah, it freaks some people out. I, You know, I, I collect uh, comments from skeptics who just won't go there. Well, my favorite uh, is a skeptic who said, uh, this is the sort of thing I wouldn't believe even if it really happened. So that is the level uh, of doggedness that a lot of people have about bringing consciousness into the equations. And I, I just think that that's uh, not going to survive. I think it's uh, short-sighted, and I think it, it, it commits the ultimate crime in science of just flat-out denying evidence. And right now, as you said earlier, you know, our, our world needs this understanding more than ever. It needs to understand the one mind embracing this concept. And, you know, I think in today's world, we can really start to feel helpless and individuals can feel like, you know, they can't make a difference. But I, I guess I've always believed through my own practice, too, you know, as we heal ourselves, then we can help contribute to the greater healing of the whole. So... As we understand our connection to the one mind, how does this help us, Larry, both individually and collectively? Well, I think individually it contributes uh, to our, our, our general sense of well-being. I think people who buy into this idea of the one mind tend to be healthier, they're more creative, and they're smarter, they're wiser, and I think this this is manifested in the way they live their life and what they have to show in their life. Now, nature did not design us to be alone. We're created to be integrated and to express and feel our in integration with one another. I think it's a sign of profound spiritual and mental health to understand our connectedness with one another. As far as the collective benefits, I think that we will come to this idea of integration and oneness or we will not be. I think that our future as a species on this earth depend on the degree which we feel it in our heart and that we experience it in our gut, that we're not individuals who can live alone and deny our connectedness with other species and with other human beings. So I think to say that there's a lot riding on our appreciation of this is really putting it very mildly. As we're wrapping up, what do you see going forward? How do we start embracing the one mind? What can we do? Well, I think it depends on uh, the role we, we occupy in our, our social lives. There are a lot of people who can make a tremendous con contribution to this advancement of understanding of our unity who come at this from science. Uh, the science of the future will, I think, inevitably embrace this idea. Uh, most people aren't scientists. They don't have a, an understanding and sometimes not a sufficient appreciation of what scientists do. But in your life, I don't care whether you're uh, a sophisticated scientist or not. In your life, you can live your life as if what you do is part of the ongoing ecology of this earth and this society. We can live our lives in such a way that we do not wall ourselves off from the rest of uh, society by, by taking dogmatic stances, whether through religion, through politics, through race, through gender, and, and so on. 
I think a world that comprehends itself as integrated and unitary and one is a better world. It's a happier world. It's more creative. It's wiser. And it also helps it continue to exist. I think that's where the bottom line comes down. I think we will come to this idea of integration and oneness and unity, or we will not be at all. So it's imperative that we tune in. Yeah, and rather rather than uh, leave you with a morbid thought, let me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you what 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 would your closing words be? What 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 would what is the message you'd like to leave us with, Larry? Well, I, I keep going back to uh, poets who a long time ago had a full understanding of this, and one of my favorite is uh, the Islamic poet Hafiz, who wrote these lines in the 14th century, and I'll read them to you. Let's go deeper, go deeper. For if we do, our spirits will embrace and interweave. Our union will be so glorious that even God will not be able to tell us apart. It's hard to take an interview of that magnitude and sum it up in just a few moments. I think one of the most important pieces that I took away from my conversation with Larry is the importance of the revision of the golden rule and how if we can start seeing others as ourselves, we will really transform the way that we treat one another. When we see one another as ourselves, because in actuality, we are all interconnected and we are all a part of each other then the way that we start making decisions, not only for how we treat each other, but how we treat our animals, the earth, and everything around us becomes changed and transformed. So the golden rule becomes, be kind to each other because you actually are the other. Such a powerful message. And as Arthur Schopenhauer had shared, that in those moments of crisis, we actually become the other, that we are one with that other person. There's so much astounding research that is proof of this one mind. And Larry took us on a wonderful journey through all the different sorts of research, through the medical profession, through psychology, through science, all pointing to the same things that we truly are connected this one mind, no matter what term you use to describe it. As we tap into that one mind, we're more relaxed and we feel more connected to those around us. We don't have to be this isolated, rugged individualist. We are all threads of this important fabric that we call life. Your contribution in this world matters and you being here matters. You are one of the important cells in this universal body of life. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.